issues that we are facing. We certainly want God's hand, uh, His mind, His deliverance in everything that we do and the direction that our lives take. Uh, we began to address a subject last week about marriage and about weddings and about all that goes with them. And uh, part of it we'll get to is that the groom goes away for a while before the marriage actually takes place. And I want to address that right off the top this morning or this afternoon because when we do have difficulties, one way of getting close to God is through fasting and to seek His will, not ours. And I think in the past so many times we wanted what we wanted so we would fast so God would give us our answer. And that's not really the right approach. The right approach is, if we have difficulties, approach Him and fast, draw near to Him so that He might hear our prayers and give us His answer. Our answer often is selfish. Our answer often is not what it ought to be. But He knows everything. He knows everything that's going on and He knows what will be best for us both now and in the long run. So, that question was addressed. The disciples, or people wanted to know why his disciples didn't fast. He says, well, I'm here with them. He says, when I go away, then they'll fast. And that ties in with this marriage story. We'll get to it a little later, and I'll probably concentrate on it a little more then. But since we're fasting today, I wanted to bring that up right away because he has gone away. He is at his Father's throne in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean he can't be with us in spirit and doesn't guide us and direct us to one degree or another. I'm sure that he does. I know that he does. I've seen his hand too many times. But he's not right here with us. Maybe it's like a couple who are married, husband and wife, and one of them is off on a trip. And they might be with you in mind, might be with you in spirit and emotion, might even be by telephone call. And a telephone call is really, really nice when you're separated. But it's not the same as being together. And it is not the same with us, with Christ. We can make the telephone call, the prayer, but it's not the same as being right with Him. So we're in a situation today where we have to make those calls. Prayers, calls, a prayer is an asking. Uh, maybe we get the, the idea sometimes prayer is a, oh, I don't know, maybe a Protestant approach, a, a holy thing in a way. And certainly there's holiness there because you're talking to a holy being, to God. But to pray simply basically means in English to ask. So we go before him and talk to him to ask certain things, whether it be blessing, whether it be guidance, whether it be for trials or whatever, we go before him to ask. So it's almost like a phone call, except that he can look down and hear us and see us, even though we can't see and most of the time hear him. So look upon it as actually talking to God. 
I think a lot of people miss that a lot of the time. They think there's no one on the other end of the phone. They're just talking, but they don't know who they're really talking to. And you need to understand that you're making a connection with a living, breathing being, a spirit being. A space is as a flame of fire. I don't try to see his features, but once in a while when I pray, I try to, in a, a sense, picture like you would on a phone you're talking to somebody. You can picture them. can't see them, but in your mind's eye you can see them. You know what they look like. So you know you're connected to someone because you can hear their voice. So we know we're connected because God says he will hear our prayers if we obey him. And we believe his word and believe that that's the case. I don't think it's wrong part of the time to picture a flame of fire like the sun. That's the way his face looks. So you're not trying to distinguish features or anything, but you're picturing that there is a being there. Not just praying to the ceiling tiles or to the pillow or whatever, or to the bedspread as you kneel by the bed, but you're talking to a living being. We need to make that connection. We need to, in other words, expect an answer. When you're on the phone with someone and you ask a question, you expect them to answer, don't you? Now, God may not answer audibly, vocally, right now. He has a few times in the past, but not too often. He may a few times in the future, according to Joel and other places. But he does answer in other ways. We get deliverance, we get guidance, we get healing, we get help. Things work out that we didn't see an answer for. So there is really someone there. How long do you talk on the phone when somebody hangs up? You usually just hang up pretty quick, don't you? They hang up on you, they say bye, or they just say whatever they say, you hang up. There's no one there. Well, understand and believe there's someone there. He said he's there. All right, getting into this, we talked a little bit about the Bride of Christ coming down from heaven in Revelation 21, and we'll probably get back there later. <clears throat> but the return of Christ and all it has to do with this end time has to do with marriage. We know we are the Bride of Christ or candidates to be the Bride of Christ. So that marriage has a spiritual overtone, and I do believe that God began marriage with Adam and Eve as a type and a purpose of his plan, and that that is reflected in the holy days. And we'll see that in detail a little later. But we're to be a part of his family. We saw that in uh, Romans 8, and how Abraham opened the door to God's plan by the, the be, can't speak, by becoming the beginning man as the anchor for the tribe of Israel to come along through his son Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Why did God stretch it out at three? I think that's very interesting. I hadn't even thought of it until this moment, but we've understood that Abraham and Isaac 
picture God the Father and Christ. And that when Abraham went up to sacrifice his son, that the, the typology there was exactly that of the Father and the Son, with Christ coming here to the earth to be sacrificed. But God stretched that out before Israel actually even became, began to the third generation, that was Jacob. Now, Jacob became Israel. Abraham was not an Israelite. Isaac was not an Israelite. The term Israel did not even come up until Jacob was a grown man. And when he prevailed with God, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Now, there's a reason for that. You have the father, you have the son, and then who becomes the bride? Israel. So he had a very important purpose in stretching that out to three generations. The father, who had a son, who then takes a bride, who is spiritual Israel. There is a great deal to this marriage thing. We'll see more and more as we go. We, went into, we then went last week to Ezekiel and actually wound up there showing how Israel was betrothed to God and married God and then later on departed from God. And there was a divorce. So they're no longer together anymore. Divorce is pretty final. Now let's pick it up from where we left it off last time. And here I want to go to the book of Hosea, pick up the story, which really picks up where Ezekiel 16 left off in many respects, because Israel was unfaithful and did have to be divorced. That was a ground in God's law, in God's way, for divorce was unfaithfulness. And Israel certainly was unfaithful to God in many, many ways. Now here in the book of Hosea, we have a story of the end-time church beginning. And I think it's important we understand and realize that. Uh, this book could have applied to Paul, to Peter, to James. In fact, they even quote from I think Paul put it O.C. or Hosea, Greek, it was different. But they understood that these Old Testament prophecies had to do with the New Testament church. Now, here at the end, the analogies, the types get even stronger because we are the final fulfillment, the final chapter, if you will, of the preparation of the Bride of Christ. He needs 144,000 to be a part of the bride, to the whole number representing 144,000 individuals who will make up the bride of Christ. Now, that started with a few from the Old Testament. Uh, it added some from the early New Testament church and perhaps through the Middle Ages. And now here at the end, he's rounding out and finishing up the number. Christ can't return to his bride until the number is complete, until the bride is not only complete numerically, but also has made herself ready in other ways. So we are the final chapter 
In the book of Hosea, even though it applied to the early New Testament church, applies in that sense even more to us today than it did then. And some of the prophecies here have to do more now, or with the time now, than it did with Paul, Peter, James, and John. It's more explicit, more specific to us than it was to them. It included them, but it's more specific to us in the story that we are here to enact. The part of the story that we are called upon to complete, to finish, to make right. Now, understanding that God had divorced Israel, no longer his wife, put her away. Divorce is pretty final. No more association there. It dies. It's over. It's finished. Done. Now, to begin this story, which goes all the way through Malachi, God has Hosea do something that would be very strange to us. We've been over it before, but in chapter 1, he told Hosea, chapter verse 2, to take to you a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land has committed great whoredom, departing from the eternal. So, he wants Hosea to actually act out what had happened in the past. God was going to make something right that was terribly wrong, that had gone terribly wrong, not because of him, but because of Israel herself, who had departed from him. So, the analogy is here, that God has to take from the peoples of this world, people who have departed from God, you didn't know God before you were called into the church here at the end time. You might have known a Protestant God, a Catholic God, a Hindu God, but you didn't know Almighty God. You didn't know the only true God. So, this type with Hosea is about us. We, were, we had gone, like the rest of the world, a whoring after the gods of this world and after Satan. So God says, if I want a wife for my son, I'm going to have to go out here in this morass of human sin and find a bride there. Now, that's not a pretty picture. Traditionally, in Israel, all young people were supposed to be virgins when they married. That was the standard. It was the ideal. And in fact, if there was fornication before marriage, the participants were stoned or got married or just depended on, on the exact circumstance of each, and I won't go back into all that. But the penalties were heavy, heavy for fornicating. Now today, it's accepted. It's just part of life. It's what everybody does. If you're still a virgin at 16, you're unusual anymore. Or 17. Because most are committing fornication. They've lost complete knowledge of God's understanding of marriage and why He created marriage, what it was all about, and all they think is how they feel and what they want, and if it feels good, go ahead, and we're going to get married anyway, or whatever justification they use. So people go ahead and fornicate. 
Sometimes it's just recreational in this society today. They don't think about it much one way or the other of the meaning of sex, the meaning of marriage. It's just what everybody does, so let's do it too. The parents tell them, don't do that. You're not supposed to do that, maybe. But they don't always impart why it's important, what it means, what bearing it has on marriage and on the kingdom of God, because they may not themselves fully grasp and understand. And sometimes it's hard to impart those things to people who are getting their understanding from their peers out in this world. And it might not seem important. But what people wind up doing these days, both male and female, is marrying people who've been around. Or we might call them sluts. If they're girls, they don't call boys that because we still have somewhat of a double standard Hound dogs, maybe, getting all they can wherever they can. So you come to the marriage already pretty experienced in many cases. Now, if we stop and think about it, would I want to go down to a brothel and pick out a girl to marry? I don't think so. I don't think most guys would. You know, they'll use and abuse all the girls they can get hold of, but then when they get married, they'd like to have a virgin. But they've been going about the business of stamping out virginity, maybe for a few years, before they decide to get married. But then they want one that's clean and pure. Why? Well, they don't want somebody else's hands and slobber all over her. Of course, they've slobbered over others, and they don't think about themselves. But Hosea was told, go out and pick yourself out a harlot. You know, I think your hand might go up the back of the class if God said that. I don't really want to do that, Father. But Hosea listened to what God had to say. Go pick yourself out a wife of whoredoms and the children of whoredoms. So he took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and he went ahead and married her, and then she started having a bunch of kids. Down in chapter 2, he said, Say unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama, because he said, well, these, these children, would, their names would mean, I will no more have mercy on Israel, in verse 6. You are not my people, and I will not be your God, in verse 9. So, the children of this whoredom carried out the story that God was no longer the God of Israel, that He had divorced her, put her away, and that these were children of whoredoms. So here we are in the end time being called to a marriage to Christ Himself, and we are the children of whoredoms. In many cases physically, and certainly in every case spiritually. We have not been what we ought to be before God. And he does not look upon that in a kind light. Divorce is not a pretty thing. 
It is impossible to avoid feelings of failure, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of what could I have done better, how could I have made it work. It doesn't matter how bad it was, it's difficult and impossible really to bypass those feelings. It makes a mess for husband, for wife, for children, for friends, for everybody. It is human failure on one level or another, and we're not putting any blame. Uh, you know, there's always guilt on both sides. On and on, we understand the story. But it does represent that things didn't work for whatever reasons. And with God, it was the same. Now, God had chosen Israel to be His chosen people. And He had promised all kinds of good and wonderful things to her. And then she went the wrong direction. In this case, it was the wife who went the wrong direction, not the husband. And human life, it can be either way or both ways. But with God being God, it was Israel who went the wrong way. And all the blessings were removed and curses came. Now, do you think God is serious about faithfulness, about adultery, about misuse of sex? Yes, He is. Because even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been faithful, and He had gone ahead and started giving them the promises, even led them into the promised land, they sinned, and He divorced them. Now, that has created all kinds of complications down through the ages, hasn't it? Because Israel has not been close to God. It's been a mess. You're not my people, I will not be your God. So he says here in chapter 2, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Now remember Ezekiel 16 where he found her and it was a time of love and he, he cleaned her all up and made her what she ought to be and so on. And then she went out and played the harlot against him. God is saying, plead. Now, we have a physical nation here of Israel and the other nations of Israel around the world. Now, God is putting forth a plea that they repent, that they change, that they be what they ought to be. If not, He's going to strip them naked, turn them loose in a wilderness, no food, no water, a great famine will come upon this land. Now, Israel has never heeded these prophecies. And this nation today, we see right on the verge of these very things happening. Pretty grim looking. Awful what's about to happen. Why is it coming? 
It's coming because of fornication and adultery against God. Spiritual sin and not following our Creator. Now that should give you a feeling for God's feelings about the sanctity of marriage and the the events that lead up to marriage and why His laws were written as strongly as they were. Because God wants a pure, clean, beautiful, pleasant, peaceful relationship that will be that forevermore. What tears marriages up? Physical human marriages? Usually it has to do with sex or money or both. The misuse of one or the other or both is what tears most marriages up. Because people get very emotional about those things. And even though people in our society have thought, well, it's okay if we fornicate, a little adultery kind of keeps your marriage going, you know, keeps it exciting. We can swap wives here and there and add a little uh, excitement or, or pornography or whatever to they use to excite their marriage. They're exciting some feelings and emotions and hormones, but they're not helping their marriage. Because it's those very things that cause marriages to break up. And even though people might be very, let's say, liberal in their approach, their marriages still break up. They still have trouble. They don't have peaceful, happy marriages. Because when you break the laws that God put in process for human beings, you do suffer a penalty. Many of the sins that human beings commit seem like fun. They can be sensually fun. But later on, they create all kinds of emotional problems. And that's what people don't understand. They're looking for fun, and then when it winds up making a mess of their lives, then they say, oh, woe is me, why did I do that? But it's too late. Their marriage is already broken. Their children are already fatherless or motherless. They have stepfathers or stepmothers. And that doesn't work as good generally as it does when the natural parents are together. God did not make these laws without a reason. The reason being that it will wreck and ruin your life, your emotions, your marriages, and create problems for you. It isn't that God is sitting up there saying, well, I think I'll create marriage and I'll make rules just so people can't do what they want to do. That's not the reason He made the rules. He made the rules so that we might live happy, peaceful lives if we would follow the rules. If we don't follow the rules, we muck up our own lives is what we do. And that's what people have difficulty understanding. God says, because of what she's done, I'll strip her naked and set her in the wilderness, let her die of thirst. Now, God wants 
a new marriage. He wants a partner for his son who will be a faithful partner, who will not commit adulteries with the world. And he's working on developing a people like that today. Now, if we're out fornicating and adulterating before and after marriage and still claiming to be God's people, this won't work. It just won't work. Because God wants a pure bride for His Son. And the Son wants a pure bride for Himself. So if we are candidates to be part of that bride and live together forever in peace in the kingdom of God, then we can't be living lives here physically which are in absolute... What's the word I'm looking for? Backwardness or... A contradiction of that. We have to be living the way that we will live then, otherwise God is not going to make us a part of that. It's all tied together. It's not just me out here doing what I want to do. We as human individuals, making up our rules as we go, as this society is doing. When they departed from the ways of God that lead to a good spiritual relationship with God in heaven and good physical marriages on the earth, when they departed from that, we got situation ethics, where you just do whatever you think is, would feel good in the situation you're in at the moment, and then put yourselves in positions to do that. Well, somebody says, well, I think I'll rob a bank. And they don't think about robbing the bank, really, until they're in the bank. Maybe the bank's closed. They hide in there, and then they think, well, here I am in a bank. I think I'll just go ahead and rob a bank. They put themselves in a position where that thought would come. Now, it was already in the back of their mind, but it didn't really bear fruition until later. So we as humans tend to put ourselves in positions where we will make the mistakes that we want to make. God says, flee fornication. He says, get away from sin. Don't put yourself in a position where it is a temptation. Don't go there. Stay away from opportunities to do that. Because human nature being what human nature is, and boys and girls being what boys and girls are, if you put yourself into the opportunity, into the chance, eventually something's going to happen. Might not first time, second time, third time. You stay together too much, too long. Watch out. And what you're doing is providing... How did Paul put it? Providing for the flesh the opportunity to fulfill the lust thereof, essentially is the way he wrote it. You put yourself in a position where maybe things will happen, or as we called it in college, cliff walking. Walk along the cliff and hope you fall off. God is telling us here that we have to get away 
from sin. Put it away from us. He says, put her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Get away from that which would cause you to do wrong. Now see, that ties in with why God says don't fellowship with the world. It ties in with why the church always had rules against dating and getting involved with people out in the world. Because if you're there and if you're doing those things, sooner or later you're going to get caught up in the things they do, the things they say, the way they think. So he says, come out of her, my people that you be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. Don't associate with her. Get away from her. And he tells us even more specifically in the prophecies, right here at the end, even get out of her cities. Go out into the wilderness. Get as far from her as you can. Not only has she sinned, but she is about to partake of the punishment for her sins and the plagues that are going to come on her. So it isn't enough, right at the end, to just spiritually remove ourselves from her, not go to her churches and her parties and and those things, and date and, and all that we could have done. It isn't enough just to spiritually remove yourself. You have to even physically remove yourself here at the end. See, until the plagues come, you could be associated to a certain degree by, say, let's say, being in a city full of sinners but not sinning. Spiritually, you're withdrawn. Physically, you were still there. As long as she was just sinning. But now we're upon the time when the plagues are about to hit. And if you're still there, you not only were in danger of being a part of her sin, but you're in great danger of being a part of the plagues that come upon her. So, can we see maybe from that a little more clearly why it is now that God says, come out of the cities, go dwell in the wilderness? Because the sins have been blatant, and now the plagues are about to come. (laughs) And if you're there, even though you may not be sinning spiritually, You might be living the right way. When the plagues come, they'll hit you anyway. I hadn't really put it that way or thought of it in quite that way before, but uh, that fits why God says here at the end, get completely away. Don't be anywhere near it. It's not good enough just to be spiritually away. Paul, Peter, James... They all moved about the cities as they preached the gospel, and they had congregations in the cities, didn't they? And they were trying to remove themselves spiritually. But God now is taking it a step further. He says, get out physically, because they're about to be destroyed. So he's going to strip her and set her in a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms, for their mother has played the harlot. So our mother Israel has played the harlot, and we, as her children, are the children of whoredoms. We've been a part of this whorish society that has not been close to God. And then it says how she'll follow after her lovers, verse 7, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. 
and America's going to be all alone here pretty quick and trying to get help from this economic collapse that we're beginning to experience. We'll go seeking after all our lovers, and as he says a little later on in the same book, she'll fly like to Israel uh, to Assyria as a silly dove, expecting to find help and answers, but they won't be there. So, she can't find her old lover. She says, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was, was it better with me than now? At some point, the people are going to begin to wake up and say, I wonder what happened to God. Where did God go? She didn't know that I was the one that gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. He was a good bridegroom. He brought her gifts. He gave her things. Gave her everything that he thought she might want and desire and love to have. He could afford it. But she returned from him anyway. Was not thankful and grateful. Anyway, says he'll visit, verse 13, I'll visit upon her the days of Balaam, where she decked herself with earrings and jewels and went after her lovers. See, there's nothing wrong with jewelry. We saw that when Christ began preparing his bride... He gave her all kinds of jewels and fine clothes and badger skin shoes and, and fixed her up really, really nice. As long as that adornment was for her husband, it was fine. But when she put them on to go out and look for lovers, that was not a good thing at all. She went after her lovers and forgot me. Verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. And I will give her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope, and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth. So out of this mess of Israel that we have, we'll see that God has begun to bring out a spiritual bride, different marriage, different promises, and begin a new marriage contract with a specific number of people, but those people have to have certain qualifications. He's not going to just marry anybody. Not going to do that. Now, I think it's very interesting that here at the end, in this final chapter, he's bringing her into the wilderness. He's bringing her out of the cities, out of the society and the culture, and Hosea is speaking of that. He says, I'm putting aside Israel. I divorced her. She's not my wife. She's not really your mother. But there has to be a new marriage contracted. I'll take her into the wilderness, and there's where he's going to set this thing up, this final chapter. Verse 16, it shall be at that day, says the Eternal, that you shall call me Ishai and shall no more call me Bali. So it'll be husband instead of master. He won't be a master to a slave in the same way anymore, but we will be a wife. I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven, with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and will make them to lie down safely. 
So when God brings His bride at the end time, part of His bride, out into the wilderness, He's going to make a covenant. The beasts of the field will not hurt. Now remember the Garden of Eden? And the, the beasts were all tame. There were no mosquitoes that bit on them. There were no uh, deer flies or uh, chiggers or anything of that nature. There were no thorns. There were no thistles. It was a beautiful garden with everything pleasant to mankind. And when man sinned, went a-whoring after the devil, Adam and Eve, God kicked them out of there and made the beasts where they would eat them and everything else where it would stick, bite, pinch, and chew on them. And that life would be difficult, and it has been ever since. And He brought us out into that kind of place right here. But He's going to transform it. He's going to make it different than what it is. Why? Because we are getting the thorns and the thistles and the weeds out of our minds, and we are becoming converted. And as we change our attitudes, then God is going to lavish upon us all kinds of gifts out here. Read Isaiah 54 and 55 and some of what Bill read in Isaiah 65 in the sermonette. The Bible is full of promises. Now, we've read there, I think it's in Isaiah, is it 51, where it says it'll be as a garden of Eden and the garden of God. And here he's saying essentially the same thing. In that day I'll make a covenant with the beasts of the field, the bow and the sword, so that the armies, military, cannot come after them. He told us he'd be a wall of fire around us, a defense for us, if we would come out here and if we would serve him. Verse 19, And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. Now, where are we, spiritually speaking, now? When we enter into the new covenant, we become engaged to or betrothed to Christ. When we're baptized and have the laying on of hands, his Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. There is a, an analogy there of a little child being conceived and then growing for a period of time until it can be born. But there is also the typology there of marriage and how that we are betrothed of Christ and then we go through the engagement period until we marry him later on after he returns. Now, you may have heard Herbert Armstrong say many times, I have, over the years, that engagements were more binding in the Old Testament than they are today in our modern society. People can get engaged and they can fairly easily give the ring back and say, I don't want to marry you after all. But we still do have the engagement period, which came from a long way back. And they did not consummate the marriage when they were engaged. They were promised. They were vowed to marry. Now, we have vowed to live God's way and to marry Christ. 
So we have become engaged or betrothed to him, and that's what he's saying right here. I've divorced ancient Israel, but now I'm going to betroth the people to me out in the wilderness who will obey me and serve me, and then I will marry them. Now we understand, do we not, that engagement is pretty binding. Once you put your hand to the plow, you can't turn back, Luke 9.62. Once we repent and go under the water, it is symbolic of a death and a new life as we come out of the water. And then we have the Holy Spirit given to us by which we are to grow and we are to prepare ourselves as a bride. So that baptism represents a betrothal. And we are then to prepare ourselves to marry in the time thereafter until the marriage be consummated after Christ returns. And you can't back out, can you? This betrothal is not a consummation, but it can't be gotten out of short of dying. We have given our hand. We have said, I will marry you, and I will prepare myself to be the kind of bride you want. And if we fail to prepare ourselves to be that kind of bride, there is a parable about a marriage in the New Testament. We'll get to it sooner or later. But when those people didn't have the wedding garment on, what happened? They were cast into outer darkness. Went to the lake of fire. Maybe this needs to be a part of the baptism counseling. We've used the baby and the conception and then the growth. And in a way, we've used this same thing. But once a baby is conceived in the mother's womb, it has to grow. It has to. And it has to then go the term and be born or become an abortion. We have to make it or we become dead, aborted, or if the engagement is broken, it is broken by death, just as marriage is broken by death. So we have entered into a very serious covenant with God here. I do believe that the old form of engagement that was almost unable to be broken is more a type of what God intended than what our modern culture allows. Because it fits the story of Christ in the church. So you should not get engaged to be married physically unless you intend to go through with it. And unless you intend to use that engagement period to make yourself what you ought to be. Now, I have said in times past that I didn't like long engagements. And maybe I should rethink that a bit. Now, they shouldn't be so long that 
you lose sight of what's going on, but they should be long enough for you to prepare yourself as a fit mate for your husband or wife to be. Just as we are in a long engagement period with Christ to become what we ought to be when we marry Him. Now, our modern society has an engagement. And what does that engagement period consist of primarily? It consists of getting ready for the physical wedding. It has to do with food and flowers and cakes and dresses and runners and decorations and, and invitations and ad nauseum that goes on forevermore, it seems. And everybody's glad when it's finally done and they're gone on their honeymoon or whatever and life returns to normal because it becomes a confusion and a frustration. And our way, our way of doing it in this modern life, they spend, in some cases, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in just the physical part of it. And they're not thinking really about what are we going to live on now that we've spent it all on stuff that we'll only have pictures of that we look at every four years down the road. You know, whatever. We spent all this money and now we don't have anything to live on. We'll live on love. In most cases, it's all out of balance because they spend their time mooning over each other and trying to make out without going too far and trying to all the stuff they do and then they go too far and they might as well have been married in the first place because they're already sleeping together and they jump out of bed and go get married and hop back in bed. That's our modern society today. Now, wouldn't it be better if we thought this thing through and they decided to get married and became betrothed and then they spent that time actually preparing themselves to be husband or wife. He's preparing maybe a place to live. <coughs> She's <coughs> making clothes. I mean, I'm just picking some things that might come to mind. They're uh, changing their attitudes, learning what marriage should be all about, learning how husbands and wives should relate to one another, learning how to solve Problems that may come up later, they'd, rather, they'd fight about instead of solve other ways. <laughs> Wouldn't it be better time spent educating themselves on what kind of mate they ought to be? Instead of all the physical fluff-fluff that goes away and is all over and then isn't there to help them when they need answers in their marriages. Now, isn't that really what Christ is doing with us? He went away, and we'll see that the bridegroom would go away after the betrothal. He'd come back for the wedding. Now, on a physical level, you're not tempted to jump in bed all the time because you're apart, and you're busy. You're busy preparing yourself for what is to come, educating yourself, learning. I suggested to a couple recently that they... Spend the time or some time before getting married going back and reading 
mystery of the ages and uh, the missing dimension in sex and some of the things Herbert Armstrong wrote, going through the Bible, learning what marriage is about instead of just being about getting married. You need to be prepared because most people in our culture today are not prepared to be married when they get married. And then the problem starts because they don't know how to conduct themselves as husbands and wives. So God has given us a period of time from the, from the betrothal until the time we actually consummate the marriage to prepare ourselves mentally, spiritually, emotionally, in every way. Now, hasn't he said not to give anxious thought in our lives here about what we'll eat, what we'll wear, what we'll drink or whatever? The physical things of this life, he said, are not to be our focus. Don't be worried about those things. What he wants us to focus on is becoming a fit bride for himself. Now, I think that puts this in perspective a little bit. That it, we're not, are we planning, we're the bride. Are we busy planning the wedding itself? We know very little detail about it. We know it may be on the sea of glass before the Father's throne in heaven. We've got the timing maybe now figured out as to when it will be in conjunction with the holy day seasons and cycles. And we'll see that a little more later. But our focus is not on all those physical things having to do with the wedding itself. Those are in the hands of the Father and His Son. The bride is down here making herself ready, getting on a wedding garment of righteousness. Now, we do have to consider garments to some degree before the wedding, because if you show up at the wedding without a proper garment, God says you're kicked out of the wedding. And He does instruct us to be putting on the garments of righteousness. But the emphasis is not on the physical part of it. The emphasis is on the righteousness, the spiritual and mental and emotional preparation to be the right kind of mate. Now, on a physical level, we do have to make certain arrangements, don't we? And certain plans have to be made. I'm not saying we shouldn't make plans. But if we make the mistake of spending all that time just on the physical preparations, and we therefore crowd out the other preparations we ought to be making, then we don't enter that marriage prepared. We've worn ourselves and our budgets and our wallets out on the physical rather than the other preparation. Now, things do cost, and there has to be a certain cost involved. But I do think that we should put a limit on those things. We'll say, all right, this is our budget, this is our limit, Let's do the best we can with it, and let's not go beyond it. Let's govern ourselves according to good sense and not through frost stupidity, which is what most Americans do today. 
Now, God said, don't fret and worry about the physical things here again. Don't take anxious thought. Keep your mind on the more important things that are involved in the marriage, not in the little things that we tend to worry about. You know, if we, if we could see this and grasp it and understand it, and I'm speaking to a lot of young people here who may get married physically someday, get the picture. And then maybe you won't be... I mean, you have to have a balance in the physical preparation and the mental and, and everything that's involved. But let's not do like this world and go head over heels upside down the way our culture does. Because all it does is create financial problems and emotional problems ahead of time because we're so worried about all these physical things. The more we understand about marriage and what God intended and about the marriage of His Son to His bride-to-be, the better we'll be able to get these things in balance. And it's, and it's hard to do. Because we have this picture in mind drawn by society of everything that has been. And we think we have to copy that. And we don't. We don't have to be like that at all. And in fact, does not Christ say that once we become betrothed, engaged to Him, we're to control our every thought, we're to walk as He walked, we're to do as He did, we are to channel our thoughts in proper courses and get our perspective right. And are we not told to give up the traditions and the customs and the ways of this world and come to live His way? Isn't that what betrothal is all about? Didn't He tell us here, put your adulteries from between your breasts and come and live the way I want you to live? And then you can be a fitting bride for me. So we as Christians have to put away all the baggage of the culture and the society around us, come out of her, my people, and do things His way for a change. Now that's not easy to do, is it? Because you grew up in a certain way, in whatever town in America you may have grown up in, or Africa or Asia, or wherever you came from. And your thinking was along these lines. Whether you were in a Protestant church, a Catholic church, or no church, your thinking was this way. And I can get around, let's say, somebody in this area that's been a Mormon. And maybe they don't claim to be a Mormon anymore. But I'll tell you what, their thinking sure is an awful lot still Mormon. Because from the time they were little babies, they were taught Mormonism. And it's a direction and a, a flow. And their minds think that way. Even though they may reject Mormonism, it's hard to get the country out of the boy. Even if you get the boy out of the country. I remember reading some things that Herbert Armstrong wrote back in the 30s and the 40s. And he still sounded like a Protestant preacher. He got less and less like that as time went on. He got less syrupy. But it was noticeable when you saw something that he had said or written recently as compared to what he had done, say, 30 years before that. 
because he had been a Quaker, grew up a Quaker, and he still thought like a Quaker. Quaker. And it took time to purge that out. Now, it takes time for us to purge this world out. Now, we've been concentrating on it a little bit lately, and it's been on my mind for, I guess, a couple of years now that we needed to change some things. And now that we're beginning to get into the Bible and study about these things, uh, I'm beginning to see a bigger picture that is not easy to change. And even though we might read some things are pagan, so, okay, let's not do that and let's not do this, it's still hard to, to get the flow of what God really wants as opposed to just getting rid of certain things. We have to understand what it's all about. And that is the key to getting it right. And that doesn't come easy. It says verse 20, I will even betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the eternal. So, the way we lived before in this life is not what God will accept. He says, if you don't change, I'll strip you naked and put the plagues on you. But if you will be faithful, you'll come to truly know me. God is faithful. God does not lie. He does not cheat. He does not steal. He will never commit adultery against his people Israel, and Christ will not against his bride to be. He will always be faithful to her. And God wants us to become the same way in our minds, in our hearts. And then he will betroth us to him as a wife. And we'll really know him. We'll get to know him. A lot of people have made the mistake in this life of marrying somebody they don't know. And then they wake up a few months later saying, man, who are you? Because they didn't know them. shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, says the Eternal, I will hear the heavens and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her to me in the earth and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Now, that's almost like a wedding vow. You're my wife, I'm your husband. Because this betrothal that he's making with people right now under the new covenant is a binding covenant. And we have bound ourselves to get to know him, to obey him, to serve him, to be the kind of bride that he depicts in Proverbs 31. That's the job before us today. So a betrothal is a very strong covenant not to be treated willy-nilly. Once you pledge yourself, you're pledged. The only way that Joseph and Mary could have broken up when she wound up pregnant and he didn't know who the father was, the only way, that was the only way he could have broken that engagement, essentially, was fraud. Because he found out she was pregnant and he knew he wasn't the daddy. So he could have privately and quietly put her away. He could have made a big deal out of it, but he was a righteous man, so he was going to 
quietly do this with as little embarrassment and shame as possible. But he could have broken the engagement because of her unfaithfulness. But then when he found out she wasn't unfaithful, and indeed it was of God, uh, then he accepted her and they went ahead with the marriage after Christ was born. So betrothal is very strong in, in God's plan and in what he has to do with the church. So it should be the same way with us. Once we're, Don't go into an engagement until you are fully prepared to go through and finish the job and live as married in one sense in terms of faithfulness, even though you've not yet become actually married and consummated it. So Herbert Armstrong, I do believe, was right when he said that the engagement should be far stronger than what we have done in our society today. It should be hard to break. It should be almost as a marriage because we've entered a marriage covenant with God. Not consummated, but we're here preparing ourselves to be the right kind of bride. So that's what an engagement period is for, is to prepare yourself to actually be fully married. We'll pick it up there next time.